Great to see you all back. I hope your summer was enjoyable, and I hope your fall is dynamic. You got your Bibles. I would like to begin by reading from the Gospel according to Mark chapter 1, starting at the opening verse. Mark 1 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there went out to him all the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with... Uh, camel's hair and had a leather girdle around his waist and he ate locusts yich, and wild honey and he preached saying after me comes one who is mightier than I the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit this is the word of the Lord Thanks be to God. You know what the problem with beginnings is, don't you? The problems with beginnings is this. Beginnings are a terrible place to start. No, it's true. You're all proof of it. How many times have you started an assignment? You had to begin some kind of study or you had to begin a paper and you procrastinated and you put it off as long as you possibly could. And when your spouse, your parent, your child, your uh, fellow classmate came and said, well, how come you waited so long? You said, I didn't know how to start. I didn't know where to begin. I believe the single most difficult thing in a sermon is how to begin. I'm proving that even at this moment. Oh, <laughs> beginnings are incredibly important, but they're hard. It's, it's not an easy thing to master how to begin a sermon. And why is it? Why are beginnings so difficult to master? It's simply this. Beginnings are a, a terrible place to start. And yet we have to start sermons somewhere, but beginnings are a terrible place. Look at Mark. Mark recognizes how difficult it is to start at a beginning. He's got the same problem. Look how he begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, you say, well, that sounds good. It does sound good. The problem is the next eight verses, he never mentions Jesus. So he says, let's start with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he doesn't talk about Jesus. That's a terrible way to begin. He goes through the Old Testament, he goes through John the Baptist, he tells what he ate, he tells what he wore, he kind of recaps his message. He spends eight verses doing this, but he never talks about Jesus. How can you start the gospel of Jesus Christ and never talk about Jesus? Why? Simple. Beginnings are a terrible place to start. It's not just Mark that has this problem. All the gospel writers have the same problem. They don't know where to begin. 
Matthew begins with a genealogy. Now there's some snappy reading. Luke begins with his reason for writing. He wants to give this orderly account. And then where does he start? With Jesus? No, he starts with Zechariah and goes through the whole mess in the temple. And then he goes through John the Baptist's birth. And then he goes through Mary and the angel. And then he goes through the dedication of Jesus after the birth narrative. He goes through the dedication of Jesus in the temple. He goes through the boy in the temple when he gets there. And then finally, four chapters in, he begins the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John, oh, John just admits his confusion from the very start. John just says, I have no idea to where to begin, so here we go. In the beginning was the Word. I'm just going to go back to creation because I don't know where to begin this story. And then after he begins with the creation, what does he go to next? Come on, what's he go to next? John the Baptist, because this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Oh, my. Why? Why is it so terribly difficult? To begin, none of the gospel writers start with Jesus, because beginnings, even beginning with Jesus, is a terrible place to start. Why is it such a terrible place to start? Well, it's simple, because beginning at the beginning of Jesus' ministry distorts the very nature and theology about who God is. It makes God episodic. It makes God somebody who is a God of moments. One of the favorite things we say now in worship is, hey, boy, you should have been in worship today because God showed up. Really? He showed up? He doesn't show up every time you worship? God is periodic? I want to kick about invocation prayers. How many of you have prayed this invocation prayer? Oh, God. Please join us today as we worship. Really? You want God to join you? you? He wasn't there before you got there? He wasn't there before you started worship? You mean you didn't get up in the morning before you ever showed up on Sunday morning and you didn't begin your day by worshiping God? You want God to show up at 11 o'clock? And then when you get there, say, okay, folks, now that we're here, let's invite God to come and join us. He wasn't there before you got there, and he won't be there after you're gone. The problem that we have here is that we imply that God is here, but not there. That God is in this, but maybe he isn't in that. That he shows up at this time, but somehow he doesn't show up at other times becomes the microwave God. He heats up, does something, and then retreats to heaven. Until the next time he shows up. Folks, this is terrible theology. But it's the theology that we imply the way in which we talk about beginnings. Even the language of the text doesn't really help us. The word beginning in the Greek is RK, and what does RK mean? It means origins, it means that which commences, it means the first thing. The problem is simply this, and Mark recognizes the problem, as all the other gospel writers seem to recognize, and that's simply this. What begins to happen now doesn't start with the beginning that we think it does. When we think God is beginning, the reality is that God has been doing when we think God is starting, the truth is God has been active long before we think he started up. 
He recognizes this. God, Mark recognizes this because as soon as he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he then says, let me quote you Isaiah. Talking about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me talk to you about Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3, which, by the way, is something that Isaiah wrote, and I know dates are problematic, but that's like 700 years before Jesus ever arrived. He says, let me tell you about the beginning. And then he goes back 700 years So you think this thing began when Jesus was born? You think this began when Jesus showed up? You think this began when John the Baptist showed up? Mark says, no, no, no. It began way back then. Isaiah knew this was going to happen. He he recognized that God was beginning to do what he's doing now 700 years before he ever started doing what we think he's doing now. This is the reality of beginnings. The work of John the Baptist apparently goes back 700 years. Because God is always doing before we think he begins. He's always active before we think he's ready to start. Beginnings don't begin. They continue. They continue what God has already been doing. Today is not a beginning. It's the first chapel of the year. It's the first day of classes. I get that. Some of you are starting your seminary journey. Welcome, you poor fools. <laughs> but this isn't a beginning. This is a continuation of what God has been doing in your life. We're just recognizing that it's a fresh day of what God has been doing. It's a new beginning of an old beginning of a beginning that God started before we began. And to understand the full measure of this, of this idea of beginnings, God has allowed Mark to couple the idea of beginnings with another word. He says it's the beginning of the gospel. And the word gospel, the evangelion in the Greek, means glad tidings of the kingdom of God soon to be set up. (laughs) It's the proclamation of the grace of God that is manifest and pledged in Christ. So you see, here's the other thing. When you think it is a beginning, God has already been acting. But here's the great thing about beginnings. The wonderful joy of beginnings is that beginnings always promise a future. They're never static. You don't begin. That's it. It's not like at the Olympics, they got all the sprinters down for the, for the 100 meter dash and they said, all right, everybody start. And they hit the gun and then they hit it again. And that was it. No, they got to run the whole distance. There was a future. There was something that was going to happen. There was a race to be had. Because beginnings always promise not just a past, that God has already been doing things, but beginnings always promise that there is a future, that God is up to something, and that we get to participate in the fact that God has been moving through, that God has been acting, that God has been doing. And because God is doing things at the beginning of something, we are promised that there is a future that God has. So you have begun this seminary venture, this wonderful experience at seminary, and trust me, you got a future. I have no idea in what, but you got a future. (laughs) Because beginnings always promise that there is something yet to do. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, says this. 
God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to do harm. Plans to give you a hope. Plans to give you a future. This is how God comes to us. It's how God always comes to us. He comes to us not just with the moment, but with the promise that he has been and that he will be. Last year at this time, I took a sabbatical, and so naturally I took the first month to read about quantum physics because that's what everybody does, right? And, and if you read some stuff about quantum physics, one, and you probably are familiar with this, you, there, there was a famous thought experiment by a guy named Schrodinger called Schrodinger's Cat. And, and in that, he was trying to talk about the problematic nature of applying quantum physics to kind of everyday reality. So here was his thought experiment. He said, you have a box, and inside the box, you put a cat. And the box has no windows and all that kind of thing, and you're going to put the cat in the box. Inside the box also, you're going to put some radioactive material. But the radioactive material is going to be, well, it, it's, it's going to be caught up in some kind of container. And the container apparently is supposed to be leak-proof, but, you know, radioactive material, one molecule gets out, it can affect everything. Inside the box also, you put poison. The poison is contained, but if one molecule of the radiation gets out and it hits the, uh, the poison, it will release the poison and the cat will die. So you put the cat in, you put the radioactive material that's contained in, you put the poison that's contained in, and then you close the door, and then you step back. And here's the question that Schrodinger posed. Is the cat dead or alive? And the answer is yes because you don't know, do you? You don't know whether one molecule has gotten out. You don't know whether the poison has gotten out. You don't know whether the cat has been contaminated. So you see the cat, or you view the cat in your mind. You view the cat as both dead and alive at the same time. None of you get this, right? See, we do the same thing in Christianity, don't we? Somebody dies. We put them in a box. We put the box in the ground. Here's my question. Is the person dead or alive? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Every time we put a person in the ground, every time we put a body in a casket, every time we put a casket in a grave, we say that this person has died, yet they live. Because in Christ... We always have a past that God has been working in, but we always have a future that God promises to us. This is the marvelousness of the beginnings, that we are always dead and alive. We are dead in our sins, yet we are alive in Christ. We are dead to the old person, yet we are alive to this new creation, because in beginnings, God promises us that there is more than the moment. There is a hope and there is a future. Some of you need to know this you've reached that point in your seminary experience where you say, I'll never get out of here. <laughs> and some of you are beginning this seminary experience and you say to yourself, will I ever get to an end? And the answer is, maybe. Yes. Because there is always this potential, this hope 
for our future. Let me suggest to you that as with Jesus and as Mark alludes to but doesn't really get into, beginnings don't define us. The beginnings don't define us. Jesus had a terrible beginning. A bastard child born out of wedlock, a father, a mother who was a virgin. Beginnings do not define us. Look around at us. Some of us have stories about our beginnings that would never say that we would end up here. I preach Sunday morning in my home congregation, the Solid Rock Church of God in Kissimmee. I preach on the first uh, Sunday of the month, typically. And I told them, I said, can you imagine what God has done? I was born into a household that was racist. My father never called anybody of color by any kind of proper name. He had a derogatory name for everybody of color, and he used only those names. That's what I grew up with. That's what was handed down to me. I go to visit my, my brother, and my brother uses the same language. And here I am, an associate pastor in an African-American congregation. Why? Not because I'm anything special, but because somewhere along the line, I realized this one great grand truth, and that is that our beginnings do not define us. Because God has promised that he has been with us, and he promises us that he will be with us, that he will have a future, that we will have a future in him. This is the great promise of the gospel. This is why Paul says, the old has gone away, behold, the new has come. In Validas, Spain, the birthplace of Christopher Columbus, there is a statue to the great explorer. The statue is a globe. On top of the globe sits Columbus in a, in a craft, a boat. That's the very front of the boat, the bow of the boat shows. The waves are crashing in and lopping over it. And Columbus is looking forward. Behind him, there is what looks to be almost like an angel, a character that the, the creator of the sculpture called Faith, and Faith is pointing forward. And Columbus's eyes are gazed on the horizon. On this huge globe, at the base of the globe, there is a lion. The lion is up on its haunches, one of its paws against the world, the other paw active. What the lion is doing is the lion is working on the banner that goes across the globe. The banner has on it, it has on it the, the motto of the Spanish Empire at the time of Columbus, which was a Latin phrase, ni plus ultra. And ni plus ultra, the phrase, the motto of the Spanish Empire was that no more beyond. They felt that they had gone everywhere in the world and that there was nothing beyond until Columbus arrived and found a whole new world. 
And this lion is up on its haunches, leaning against the globe and scratching at the banner. And he is scratching away the word knee, no. So that now the, the motto of the Spanish empire would be, there is yet more beyond. This is the hope of beginnings. This is why we begin things, because there is hope for yet more beyond. I bequeath to you, as students, as pastors, associate pastors, and those who have been called to ministry in various kinds of places and ways, I bequeath to you the gift of beginnings, not because we start, but because we continue, and because when we begin, God promises us a future and a hope. This is the most hopeful place in the world. Why? because it's the beginning of a new semester. Would you stand with me?